Okay. Hi guys, welcome back to Hear Our Voices. It's your host, Katie Did, coming back to you one more time. So guys, please, please, please follow us on social media. By the time this video come out, I mean, a couple of weeks, because right now we're still in October, this might come in November, I would assume. So <laughs> the way, depending on how I edit things, we have a giveaway. So by now you have heard about it, please join in, follow us on all our social media platform. As you know already, it's a $150 gift card. So you to be a part of this, I'm gonna tell you a little bit of the criteria that, you know, like the last giveaway, you have to actually be in a shelter, a family shelter in New York City. And we'll verify this information, we have ways. And that's the one way you can be a part of um, this giveaway. So you can, we, before we had on a restaurant, but now we was like, let's give people, people gift cards, but they could spend on whatever they wanna spend it on, whatever can help you and your family at this moment. So also thank you for watching. Thank you for supporting us on this journey. And um, please follow us on all social media platforms because by then you would have heard about the giveaway because it's out of posted on there by now. Also follow the Spanish podcast if you can understand or speak Spanish, that would be great. They come out once a month on the fourth Wednesday of the month. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm constantly on Instagram. I'm just saying, if you have any questions, concern, if you don't want to write, because right now on, if you're listening to me, you, I don't, they don't have comments down below. But if you want to talk to me personally, you can go in the link down below. We'll have everything there, but it has my personal information there too. If you just want to um go into the actual HOV and whoever um listens to it, because we have a new fellow coming on and she'll be helping me with those things. You can put your information there. Any questions you might have, if I know the answer, uh, I'll tell you. If I don't, I will find it out for you. I'm just saying, I, I I don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. So anything I don't know, I will definitely ask somebody who's qualified to do it. But as you can see on the screen, we have a guest today, which I'm so excited about. Um, Her name is Anne. Um, I can't wait for you to meet her. I met her a couple of weeks ago. Well, probably a week now, right? Probably not a couple, like a week. <laughs> it was last week, Friday, I believe. And... She's gonna share her story today. And this is actually her first time sharing her story. And I just can't wait to get into it. But I want her to tell you a little bit about herself now and where she is in her life before you can hear her story. So Anne, tell us what you do. Kadisha, thank you so much for inviting me into this and for all your warmth and grace. I am a researcher. I am at Chapin Hall at the University of Chicago. My work and the work of our whole team is around ending youth homelessness. And uh, increasingly, we understand the intergenerational nature of homelessness. So uh, we're creeping in the direction of child and family and youth homelessness, because we all know that there are some vicious cycles that the structural inequities that we live with have placed a lot of people in, in this country. And so, uh, if you had asked me when I was in, when I was still in my education, would I end up being a full-time researcher? I would have laughed at you, <laughs> um, but I'm not in a sit in your office and not talk to people researcher. I right. thrive on my interactions with people and at Chapin Hall and throughout my career, the work I've done has been in community and with community. And uh, I have learned more in and with community than I, and then all my years in graduate school, I can promise you that. Hands-on work is definitely the key of all things. So I think it's amazing. Um, I know you might not know the stat 
like of numbers the top of your head right now. But like I said all the time, um, she, as she's, she's a researcher, she knows data and information like that. But out of all the populations of homelessness, which, you know, I know the answer already, which is the highest population of homelessness based on data that you have and that you know about? Well, um, my expertise is more in child and family and youth homelessness. So what, so I should say, what I don't know that much about is veterans and single adult homelessness. Got what it. I can tell you is that um, we did a study, oh, it's getting old now, it's five or six years old. And we looked <laughs> at the incidence and prevalence of youth homelessness and found that one in 10 young people between the ages of 18 and 25 experience some form of homelessness. Right. I'm gonna let that sink in. And most of your listeners might not be surprised but if I'm out in the general public and I say that to people, they're dumbfounded. They don't right. believe it. One in 30 young people between the ages of 13 and 18 experience yeah. some form of homelessness. And that includes what we all think of as homelessness. Most of us think of as homelessness on the street, in your car, sleeping in a train station. It also includes being doubled up and couch surfing, um, couch surfing, could sound like this alluring thing that you do through an app and travel the world. Right. This is what we're talking about. Right. Um, we're talking about people who are forced and not volunteering or by choice living with other people. And those, those circumstances are highly precarious because you never know when your friend or your auntie or a pandemic will force circumstances to change and suddenly you are out on the street or you're hoping that someone else will have the resources and offer the generosity of of their home and to be clear being in someone else's space is not the same as being in your own you are always on guard so uh, we i think it's easy to think of homelessness as this literal form and yet uh, a lot of people in this country experience different forms of homelessness. Right. Um, so I'll tell you the answer. For New York City, the biggest population of homelessness, because um, they do do census on street homeless, and it's kind of harder to do them because they, they can go anywhere they wonder, and they don't have like a particular number. As you know, and you go in the sheltered system in New York City, you have a number that kind of tracks you when you get in the system, like a social security number for homelessness, basically. Um, but the number was the highest number is family homelessness and the age in New York City with the most homelessness with ki kids are under, I want to say the age of five, was it three? It's one of those, it's very low numbers, but she <laughs> also is from Chicago. Statistics are very different, but in general, um, as she said, 15, it was 13 or 15, you said 13 to 25, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. think about that number. Think about this, technically your legal age as an adult you know, their mind is not even developed but yet, it's 18. That means from 13 to 18, technically, all right, say 13 to 17, because you're an adult when you're 18, right? 13, that kid is with their parent most time, or they're on the street. When they should, that's legally, they're supposed to be with ACS if, or foster care if they're not with their home. That means either their family structure is so bad that they're on the street or in a shelter with their family member, or they're by themselves on, the, on the street by themselves where nobody can actually protect them, take care of them. Can you imagine adults are on the street and getting sex, like sexual harassed, getting raped, all these things. Can you imagine a child 
not even 18 year olds. I'm not saying people who are over 18 should get raped. And not, not, I'm just saying, can you imagine a child that happening to who's not properly developed in the mind or body properly? And it's of anything that happens to you, no matter what age it happens, it affects you until you die. So you're with this trigger in your head, even with therapy, until you die. People have PTSD from regular wars. And mind you, they sign up for this thing. You don't sign up to get raped. You don't sign up to get homeless, to be homeless. So just think about this when you look at somebody and you try to judge them on the street. And granted, I think we all do, especially if we see somebody looking kind of rough and we're like, oh my gosh. But we got to think about, they didn't want this. They didn't wake up as a child thinking, this is going to be my life when I get older. People usually think of having the white picket fence and the dog, maybe a kid if you don't like that, a little fish, goldfish, a big family. If you, if a person with like small family, probably just a partner, maybe one child. And at this point, people's pets are like their child. And they don't think of when I get older, I'm going to be sleeping on the street. I'm going to be sleeping in the train. I'm going to be sleeping in the park. I'm going to have a kid and be in a DV situation that I have to run away and leave all the stuff that I know behind, but run with my kid to make sure we're alive. We don't think about that. Even when you, people who grew up in these situations, because they don't know that is not normal to live that way, they don't think about that's how their future is going to be. And as she said before, things like this is our cycle. Until you know how to break the cycle, it stays there forever. But I just want to get into that and um, the work that she does and that she brings clarity to people about the information. Because a lot of people just walk around because it's not their reality. They don't think about what's actually happening out in the world and out in people's spaces. So I'm happy that she does her job and to enlighten people like me and everybody else about what's really out there and what the numbers are. So, yes. Thank so, you. <laughs> so I want to get into her story today. You heard where she is, what she's doing. And looking at her, you would think she doesn't have any problems. Because that's what people think. Like, they think certain people don't have certain things. And that's honestly not the truth. You can't look at a person to see what they actually go through. Um, and looking at her, you just say, she's a normal person, nothing. She had a fine childhood. She she grew up amazingly, a house, probably two parents. That's what people probably think by looking at her. But I want to get into her story today so she could tell you what actually happened to her to make her become the strong woman that we see today. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and get into your story a little bit for me, please? Sure. So I grew up in a relatively small working class town in New Jersey. Yes, I'm a Jersey girl. Um, I, um, I'm the fourth of five children, um, Irish Catholic background, and my family, um, you know, I, I'd like to say everything was fabulous until, but the right. truth is, there are roots in these things. And I think you said it beautifully, Kadisha, we all sort of think the way we grew up is normal. Right. And um, I was doing this work a long time before. I realized some things about myself and my family. And so when I was in um, fourth grade, which would make me what, nine or so, nine or nine, 10? Nine, 10, yeah. My daughter's in third and she's eight. So my parents' marriage was deteriorating clearly for years, but I mean, at this point I'm nine years old. Right. Um, uh, my father had uh, was a very severe alcoholic um, and I, as these things go, you know, you become an adult and you look back on it, marital conflict. Um, uh, he was, he served in World War II, I think, who knows what, I mean, he literally, those folks didn't talk about their experiences. Um, I know he had some traumatic experiences. Right. I know he lost people very close to him in the war. 
Um, so who knows how this all comes together? I never really talked to my father about those things. I regret that. But um, he was a very serious alcoholic. Um, later, went into recovery, did all the steps. And I, at the time of his death, I had a very close and loving relationship with him. Aww. And he made amends. But at that time, uh, the household was pretty rough. Um, my oldest two siblings were a lot older. And so it was three of us at home. Um, I was in the middle and there was a lot of conflict, a lot of fighting. There were physical fights in the house. Um, and one night, um, and you know, my father would, uh, he sort of didn't know where he was. Um, he came home really late. I didn't understand alcoholism. We didn't talk about it. Um, I mean, I knew there was a whole lot of martinis. I knew how to make a martini at a very young age. Um, uh, so, you know, that's some serious drinking there. And Irish, I mean, Irish culture has a tendency to minimize. Um, I mean, lots of cultures do, but it's particular to the Irish. Um, you know, there's a, there was an, there is and remain the longstanding remnants of um, a, basically a civil war in Ireland that's called the Troubles. I mean, oh. right? So that's talk about minimizing. And in my family, when someone would say, um, he has a little problem with the drink or right. he has quite a problem with the drink, that means someone is just like falling down drunk in public. Um, so this notion of minimizing things, I think, is very much a part of the story and you just don't talk about it. Right. So um, I knew things were wrong, but I didn't even talk about it with my siblings. Right. So one night uh, it was, things were really bad. It was a school night. I was awakened by my parents arguing. Um, my father had a service revolver. I knew where it was. The kids always know where the gun is. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, it was in my parents' closet. To this day, I could see it. Um, I knew where the bullets were. Um, and there was discussion. I mean, I was literally at the top of the stairs, like, um, <laughs> trying to hear what was going on. And the gun was mentioned. Um, and I say all of this, like, I was like, <gasps> but I wasn't. I was like, okay, it's the gun. Wrong. You're so used to this this narrative of DV, technically. This is, if you are listening and not even think catching on what she's saying, that she's saying it so calmly. She's a child who's literally watching DV happen every day, basically, with alcoholism. Sorry to interrupt, but people have to realize, argue, granted, people argue, but when it gets out of hand, <laughs> then it's, it's a problem. And that is a form of abuse. Right now, we're in Domestic Violence Month, and we're about to end, but I'm just making sure you can hear the nuances of her stories. It's not like, you know, and because she's so used to it, she's like, I'm listening, but it's not like she's hiding and listening. She's like up on the steps and listening to this happening. And yeah, yeah, we're talking, Shirley, and, and then the gun. Like, it's so normal. And because you're a kid and this happens every day, you think it's normal, but it's not. But continue. I'm so sorry. It's just. Oh, no. Oh. It's, it's important clarity because I don't always hear it myself. I mean, there was an occasion where my father and my older brother got into a physical fight. There were wounds. And I don't know if there were stitches or shit, but it was. It was scared. I remember being scared at that. But anyway, so that particular night, so what did I do? I went and I found the gun and um, I moved it to my room. Because <laughs> of course that's what you do. 
I mean, it's crazy, right? Right. And um, my mother came upstairs and um, I heard her go into the room. I mean, it wasn't that big house. Like you got to the top of the stairs and it was like door, door, door. Right. My bedroom was right across from my parents' bedroom. I knew my I knew where my mother was going. She was going into the closet to look for the gun. So, and she's not finding it. And I'm aware she's not finding it. So now I'm scared. Now I'm scared, which is, think about that. Yeah. I'm scared I'm gonna get in trouble. Um, so my mother comes in, have you seen the gun? You know where the gun is? And I was like, I think it seems so normal to have you seen the gun? Like, right. Have you seen the gun? You know where your right. gun is? Um, and then my parents always had, always had this thing. They would, they would ask you once, and if they think you're not really maybe telling the truth, they would say, I'm going to ask you again, and I'm going to really ask you to tell the authentic truth. Right. So that question was asked, and I, she was like, do you know where the gun is? And I, I nodded, and I, don't, I honestly don't remember. Like, it's all sort of a blur, flashes. And so next thing I know, I'm being awakened. Next thing I remember, I'm, I'm being awakened for school in the morning. I went to Catholic school. I put my little uniform on and um, I, I wasn't, we didn't drive to, we weren't driven to school. We either took a bus or walk. And I was dropped off at school and like something was different. I didn't know what was different. And then I, right before I get out of the car, right before I get out of the car, my mother said, I, I'll pick you up or someone will pick you up today, but things will probably be different from here on. And I was like, okay, end of the day, I have no idea who picked me up, but I remember we stayed with a friend of my mother's. Um, and I also remember I sort of had a crush on her son and he was really, really nice to me. I mean, I was <laughs> girl, right? Um, he was really, really sweet to me, and we watched TV, and he let me watch what I wanted to watch. I don't, I, I have no idea if we stayed there for one night or ten nights or two, whatever. And then we moved in with my grandmother, and my grandmother lived up the street from the little Catholic school that I went to. Um, and my, uh, I think my cousin Debbie was also living there, who was also in a very problematic relationship. So. This isn't just us, right? Um, right? And my grandmother was, there's no other way to say this. My grandmother was not a nice person. Um, and she picked on me, like really picked on me. Um, so being there, I don't think she did it as much in front of my mother because I don't think my mother would have stood for that. But she, I mean, she really picked on me. Um, like it's it's a running joke now again minimizing but also oh God. <laughs> right. um, and so it was really hard to be there and my mother you know we went from two incomes to one um, my father I guess he was just in the house drinking all day every day he lost his job uh, the house was a disaster I couldn't tell you if it was days, weeks, or months. I think it was a couple of years, probably. Right. I had, I was ashamed of my father's alcoholism, even though I didn't fully understand what it was. I was ashamed that we were living with my grandmother. I was ashamed that my parents were separating. I never told anyone. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell my bestie, Karen. Um, I mean, I think I whole town knew. 
Karen was awesome. I think Karen knew for a while and she just kind of got closer to me and invited me over a lot. Um, she, a you real know, friend. That's a real friend. Shout out to you, Karen. <laughs> Karen McMahon. Yep. Um, so it was the shame around it was extraordinary. Um, and I was, people laugh at me. You'll laugh at this too. Like I was a painfully shy child. Mm. Um, when you spent two days with me, it means I was, I'm not shy. <laughs> right. Painfully shy. I was afraid to pay for things at the register because the attention was overbearing. Oh, wow. Um, who knows how this all mixes in with the rest of it. Um, but so we were doubled up. Right. Doubled up for a long time. We were doubled up with, uh, with a really unhappy person who was verbally abusive to me um my grandmother and what were you know what are my siblings gonna do what was I, again like my mother just passed this year which honestly maybe freed me up to have this conversation i just am realizing um i never really asked, we all sort of joked and laughed about it but i never asked her like why i mean my mother was the sweetest sweetest lady and i guess sometimes that's what happens if you're raised by someone who's kind of cruel you turn it into kindness. Um, so we lived there for I don't know how long I wouldn't I refused to see my father. Um, he was he went into a fancy rehab, then he went into a less mm. fancy rehab. He ended up in a state hospital. Mm. Marlboro, if you're from New Jersey, you know what Marlboro Hospital is. Um, that was like the pinnacle of my shame. And my shame was so overwhelming that I couldn't I couldn't engage. I couldn't. I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't acknowledge any of this at all. I mean, suffice to say that there are probably some adults in my life who should have been talking to me about this, and maybe they did. And I was just so clammed up, I couldn't respond. It probably see as a problem, though. You got to think about that. I feel like generations back, they don't see a lot of things as a problem, and then society has to pull it into reality. Twenty years later, like, oh no. Maybe you shouldn't be beating up your child while you're drinking. That's probably not the right thing to do. Maybe you shouldn't be arguing around your children because, and if you do say something was, you know, controversial in front of your children, you shouldn't be yelling and screaming because the children are going to do the same thing that you're doing to somebody else when they get older. Because kids are sponges. They take everything that you do, they take it in. Even if you say not to do it, that's the thing they're doing because they see that you're doing that thing. So you have to be very conscious about that. I'm happy that you had, um, you wasn't that lonely. You had Karen and, um, I'm just, I wonder what's wrong with your grandmother so much that she did that. But I'm also thinking, I don't know how long you, you don't, because there's a child when it happened, how long your mother actually, you know, went on with this. Because it takes a lot to actually leave. A lot of people are in DV situations. It's hard for them to leave. And for her to have that courage to actually leave, how I want to like, it seemed like it happened all the time. So she finally left to make sure that you guys have a better life. And she's probably tired of the, the craziness happening to you. Um, I think she managed to talk herself into tolerating the alcoholism, but when the physical threat of when when she could not ensure the safety of herself and her children, I mean, a gun. Right. Um, she it had to be. And this was, you know, this is a long time ago. And um, my mother was a high school nurse at my high school. Thank you very much. I couldn't do anything. <laughs> I did some things. Uh, right. 
<laughs> but uh, you know, she couldn't afford she couldn't afford a home. Um, and, we, and we're lucky. I mean, we were, you know, my mother had a job. She was a nurse. She was a nurse in World War Two. I mean, not in the war, but yeah, I agree. And um, so she worked two, three jobs, saved up money. Um, while we all lived with my grandmother, we called her Graham. We lived at Graham's um, and until my mother had enough money. And then she still worked two and three jobs to be able to afford the house. And I look back and see that she was depressed. Uh, she was angry. Um, she was all the things that you would expect her to be. She didn't go into therapy. She went into therapy in her 70s. Oh, um, that's kudos to mom because for that age to do anything like that is is a lot. She And she's been through a lot. So I'm proud of her. I'm really proud of my mother. Later, not during that time in my life, but later I lost a brother to suicide. He took his own life. Um, that, um, you know, it's all mixed up together um, in a family and how someone um, becomes that hopeless um, is, I mean, he had depression clearly, but I think there are many things that happened along the way in my family that opened the door, if you will, for him to fall that far and not feel like he had, he was just without hope. Um, and my mother, I mean, this is, uh, again, to me, so I just. Hi again, this is your girl, Kay did. And this is at the end of part one of her story. I just wanna, we came into some heavy topics. <laughs> so I cut it right there. So it was not going too much deep in, um, but thank you for tuning in. And if you know anybody who needs the help and um, who's who you think might be lost, check in on your friends, check in on your family. This is coming down to the part of the year when for a lot of people, even myself, it can be kind, kind of sad. So check in on the people who you think are the strong people. They usually are not the strongest, as you might think. think of, go check on the people who are always smiling and making sure that everybody else is around is happy because they usually are not the happiest people. Um, not because they don't want to be happy. It's just something sometimes in them are broken. Okay, so check on your loved one. Check on your friends. See who needs an extra person in their life this holiday season. Thank you for listening. Thank you for following. Um, by now, um, by the time you hear this podcast, today will be literally the last day that you can, um, which is the Wednesday, the 15th of November, 2023. And it'll be the last day that you could put in your submissions for the getaway. That's a giveaway. Sorry. And it's a $150 visa gift card for anybody who's in shelter, family shelter with a child under 18 in New York City. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being a part of our family. Thank you for just being there to listen to people's stories and see how homelessness comes in many different ways. It's not a, a color thing. It's not a it's a people thing. Um, even though in New York City, if you don't know, before um, I want to say 2021, the people highest in shelter were black people, and under that was Hispanics, and then there's other. Now. There's Hispanics and then there's Blacks and there's others. So just be mindful um, of people, what you say, what you do, how you treat people. Because it could be you one day 
who is actually homeless. Thank you for being amazing. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time. Well, you'll hear me next time. Bye.